Get your tickets for the Detroit is Different Festival, October 25th through 27th. Tickets online at DetroitIsDifferent.com. DetroitIsDifferent.com. All right, it is Saturday night, March 10th, 2018. I'm here with somebody that's known me my whole <laughs> life. We actually are in the house um, that ties us together big time. Um, Detroit is Different Studios takes place in what was my grandma's house and to me it still is my grandma's house even though it's a podcast studio and a video studio and recording studio and so much more to other people it's still my grandma's house my mother dear but uh my big homie of all big homies it starts with my big sister dar dar harper how are you i'm great thanks for having me on the show uh it's a lot of memories to be back in this house with us together back in the d it's good to be home. Yeah, right now uh, you just recently made the move out to L.A. Um, a lot of different things you're pursuing with movies, uh, films, writing scripts, uh, directing, animation, all types of things. And let's start a little bit there because I want to bring you back to show a full-length feature that you've put together as animation is something big that you're into and animating black faces. So... Um, let's start there. You're my sister. I know your story a little bit, obviously more so everything, but for everybody listening, how did you get interested in animation? Well, um, I always did love the Disney cartoons. Uh, the little mermaid was my personal favorite. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how, if you remember me watching the DVD, I mean, well, this was before D this was pre DVD VHS tape. Um, you know, over and over again until you got those those fuzzy lines at the bottom of the screen type deal. Mm -hmm. uh, loving Sebastian the Crab. Mm -hmm. But also growing up, you know, as a black girl looking at the screen and seeing that Ariel didn't look anything like me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one Disney cartoon and one princess after the other, like Snow White and all the other ones, they didn't look like me either. Mm -hmm. And in more recent years, it's definitely a little more diverse, but Disney still has yet to, or even any of the uh, Hollywood studios, uh, even the independent ones, have yet to present uh, image of uh, like an African animation. Mm -hmm. When we think of African animation, what comes to mind for most people, The Lion King. But they chose to tell that story with animals instead of people. So I look to Simba or Nala or somebody, but it still doesn't look like me and you. Mm -hmm. So my journey as an, as an artist began all those years ago when, you know, just drawing and playing around with different stories and playing around with our old, a very old Mac. You know, the one, the Macintosh where it had the apple in the corner of the screen and the, the small little black and white gray screen and learning how to use Mac Draw, Mac Paint. You know, I'm dating myself here, but falling mm -hmm. in love with those things. And then I eventually went on to the Detroit High School for Fine and Performing Arts, where we were immersed in art for three hours a day. So that really helped me craft and, and build my talents as a visual artist. And also my minor was drama. So it helped me to get more comfortable, even learn about film and storytelling in that way. So I always knew I wanted to stay with it. Uh, and even in college at the International Academy of Design and Technology in Chicago, I studied 2D and 3D animation, but it was all digital. So then 
this hard, complicated thing of making an animation, it was like, as opposed to like needing a team of 100 people, my teacher showed me how I could do it with one computer myself. So let's let's start right there with computers. Um, as our father um, bought his first Mac in, I want to say, was that 87? Mm, yeah, maybe 86. 86, 87. Yeah. So in 86, 87, this is before the big commercial mm-hmm. with the um, sledgehammer through the screen and everything. My dad was one of the first people to have a Mac. Right. Um, and when he bought a Mac... He also bought us a Macintosh, meaning he bought two computers. He bought one for himself, and then he bought one for his children, me and you. And um, you took to it a whole lot more than me, but you being my big sister, I'd see some of the art you do, and I want to do some things. But let's talk a little bit about that, being before even being a teenager, before hitting Mm -hmm. the age of 10. Like, we were, Well, I was five years old. I was five or six. So... That exposure, you know, learning how to use a mouse, learning how to draw with a mouse. So because I was still learning how to draw, mm-hmm. using the mouse was still was organic to me. Like some people think it's antiquated to use the mouse to draw. Even today, I can still draw with a mouse. I don't need the stylus. I don't need the graphics tablet. Um, but it was a special time because on this little computer with the screen, uh, you know, that was about the size of a little box, I could create all of these cool things. You and I would fight over computer time. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember all those battles. So I would type up stories. Um, I wrote my, I typed and wrote a story when I was seven years old in the second grade. I don't know if you remember this, but uh, this story that I wrote about a princess and um, this is kind of a story that, I don't know, it may be, give me a little trouble here, but um, our parents were very open and honest with us about all types of topics, including, like, good touch, bad touch, what is sex, etc. Anatomically correct, you know, words for the parts of a man and a woman. So none of this was foreign to me. So in my story, I wrote a story about a princess and she discovers a magical turtle that takes her to a place with with using a rainbow road and she meets the king of this village she marries the king and actually put in the story i typed they have sex period Mm. and i printed off the story on our laser printer which cost a fortune at that time you know Mm. and the ink was even so expensive it's hard to believe back in the day yeah And so I printed out the story. It was a seven-page story, and I stapled it. And I printed out several copies. And my mom was asking, because, you know, ink is so expensive, like, what are you printing, Dara? And I'm like, this is my first story. I want to share it with my friends at school. And she was like, that's great. That's wonderful. Like, mom hadn't even read the story, right? Mm -hmm. So I go to school, and this is is where I'm learning my salesmanship skills. Mm -hmm. I say, I've got a story. I'll sell it to you for a quarter. And the kids are like, we don't want to buy your story. We don't care about your story. But what I would do is I would go to the last page of the story when I would reveal she married the king and they had sex, period. So sex sold even uh, I was I couldn't even tell grade. you. I, could, I couldn't <laughs> tell you how many quarters. I My pocket was I overflowing I, with quarters, right? This is what's unique. You're my own sister, and I didn't even know. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know that that was... Uh, this was at Nataki Taliba, an African-centered uh, mm-hmm. elementary school, 
right mm -hmm. so i'm selling these stories in the in the cafeteria this is a private school with like a lot of kids that come from with parents from very prestigious backgrounds etc you know and so the principal of the school called my mom and dad into the office and she said mr and mrs frazier your daughter uh I, I received a complaint from a parent regarding this story it's inappropriate for her to be distributing this material furthermore selling it on the school premises et cetera, et cetera, right mm -hmm. and then my you know mom's like Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, mom, she's like, oh, we're going to talk to Dara. And then dad, he couldn't just, he had this smirk on his face. Well, kid figured out early that sex sells. Hilarious. You didn't even know that one, huh? No, nah, I, I never even knew that story. Um, yeah, so that was like me combining my storytelling abilities, marketing it, and yeah. actually like finding an audience for my material. You know, like it's something that still is like, it's still an amazing feat to do that even all these years later. But um it's that's how I fell in love with that process. It's you as an artist creating content and then distributing that and hopefully finding and connecting to an audience. Okay, so finding connecting to an audience. Now we can uh, truncate and move a little bit to DSA, where you develop more of your skills as an artist. But what was that like? Because you went to early DSA. You went yes. to D old DSA. The old DSA on Grand River, off of mm -hmm. Grand River and, you know, like in the Rosa cut Parks. by Rosa Parks and yeah. all of that. So, yes, uh, which is all uh, abandoned. The land is uh, it's nothing there now. Um, so in those early days of DSA, uh, first off, you know, Dr. Cotton now, she was, this was before she got married. She was Dr. Davis, Dr. Denise Darcel Davis, we used to call her Triple D. She had this vision of a school, a performing arts high school in the heart of the city of Detroit, uh, where kids from the east side and the west side would come together, learn um, visual arts, paint, uh, dance, drama, uh, vocal, instrumental, etc. And the way that she allowed us to have that three hours of art every day was that it was an extended school day. So you would have to, the day DSA thing started at like quarter to eight, you know, 7.50, 7.45 roughly in the morning. And mm -hmm. you stayed until 4.30 PM. So that's almost like a work day, like working a day job. Like some schools let out as early as three. We were there until, you know, 4.30. And we had like a shorter, a shortened lunch period. But it was, for us, it was a joy because we got to do, as long as you kept up your academics, you got to stay at that school and do the art that you loved. Uh, and also studio time was required, I think twice a week, where we had to stay one hour after school, at least twice a week or something. So they, it was really emphasized that if you're gonna study your craft as an artist, this is not just like something that you passively say, like I'm an artist, like, no, 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 you're gonna sit here, you're gonna learn the craft. I had two incredible visual arts teachers. Um, I had Mrs. Glenn Gale. She was like the most amazing teacher because she pushed me. I thought I was a good artist. I thought I could draw. Mm -hmm. And she told me, she said, Dara, you're good, but you could be so much better. And I would turn in something and I would think that it's, you know, good enough. And she's like, I know you've got better in you. And she would make me redo the entire assignment and I'd be so frustrated. But looking back, Mrs. Glenn really pushed me to excel. 
she didn't just take like any old thing from me. Like sometimes people, especially when it comes to assignments and you feel like you've got, you're smart and you've got some skills, like I'm gonna do just enough to get through it. She never accepted that. And then my other teacher was Mr. Henry Boyd, who was a very sharp dresser, very talented painter. Uh, and he taught us that craft and he taught us a, a lot of different things. So the compliment of both of them and also my, some of the drama teachers and others that I learned from through that time at DSA, uh, in addition to the, the strong academic curriculum. Uh, when, when I talk about being a product of Detroit Public Schools, like as much as as much as everything is going on right now, then I'm I'm aware of it. Even though I'm living in LA right now, or technically Inglewood, but in LA County, I'm still I still keep an eye on everything that's here, and I can tell you that Detroit has at the time at that time and even today some of the most talented, artistic, creative, and brilliant kids in the country in the world. And I felt very much a part of that at DSA. Aaliyah was two grades up from me. And she was very nice. Like, you know, usually upperclassmen don't speak to, like, you know, lowerclassmen at all. Like, if you're a freshman, mm -hmm. only freshmen will talk to you. You know, you have yeah. to be in high school to understand this. Mm -hmm. um, nobody, like a 10th grader, won't even make eye contact with you. But she was always nice to me. Like, if I was coming out of tap class and I... She would always say like, hi, like I'll never forget that. Like she was really sweet and very down to earth. Like you would never know that she had like a hit album out because she was just with us. Um, and I felt that that DSA experience and so many people that I went to school with have gone on to do wonderful things. Um, it was it was a very special time to be there. And it was a very small, close knit school. Like there were only about, I want to say 400 kids total when I went. So you could line up 100 DSA students against the wall and put one kid from another school, and I could point out the kid that came from another school. That's how close-knit it was. And for me, like, being what some people may have classified, especially growing up in, you know, in, in the inner city in this neighborhood where we grew up, you know, maybe a little nerdy, like, you know, being teased, you talk like a white girl, because let me tell you something, like, you, you know that our mother was never going to allow us to, to speak Ebonics, like she was on us about proper English. I know. I didn't, uh, I didn't so. learn, I didn't learn street language until, street <laughs> language. I didn't learn street <laughs> language until I matriculated much later in this life. But And I, and I matriculated a lot earlier being a boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In our neighborhood. Yeah, it was like, yeah no was, doubt. I was on punishment all the time for broken English. Yeah, so the like wine said. <laughs> <laughs> but rest you know, in peace, Juan. <laughs> that's right. Rest in peace, brother Juan, for sure. Mm -hmm. But um, I, you know, like being teased for different things and looking back at it, being the kind of kid that I was uh, in this environment, I still felt like at home in this neighborhood. Like this still feels like home to me. Yeah, but um, no. I never felt like I was, like, ostracized from my community. But when I came to DSA, then I was thinking, like, oh, wow, there are creative kids that are, like, nerdy like me and quirky like me and have the same kind of sense of humor that I have. And I felt like I had found a home. Like, when you're an artist sometimes, and every artist is different, but I felt sometimes on my own, like, hmm, I don't, I, am I the only person that likes this kind of music or am I the only person that whatever whatever and I and it was like a little bit of 
everybody being accepted. Like even at DSA all those years ago, there were boys who, uh, black boys who wore makeup mm-hmm. and they walked down the hall and nobody, nobody said anything. Nobody okay. pushed them or challenged them. Like it was a very open environment. Now, as you talk about that, um, and we've had talks about this, like, cause now your mom, you have my nephew Solomon, and just growing up and just a, a whole thing he went through. And one of the things I didn't know, like, you'll be in the same house as somebody. Like, you're a door away. Mm-hmm. But, like, all the bullying that you went through at a younger age. But then you ended up at DSA and mm-hmm. it kind of fit in. And and what that meant and what that experience was like. And what did that mean? Because you went through some things at other schools. Mm-hmm. But then ending up at DSA, it just fit. Yeah, it was hard for me because... Like I said, I I was bullied, I was teased, I was picked on a lot. Um, And it was very hurtful and painful. Mm -hmm. I kept a diary of those times and I was like 10 or 11 years old writing like about how much sadness I felt. And it's, you know, it's hurtful to read back through some of those notes and see like exactly the, the pain that I felt. And that's one of the other reasons why I always tell people especially, um, you know, younger people when I have the chance that acceptance of others who are different is is paramount. Um, But it's not, but still, like, when I think about what I went through, it definitely helped shape my character. Uh, It it made me the person that I am today because that, that made me toughen up. It forced me to. And although I never had to, like, get into physical confrontations with these bullies, thank God for that, uh, the emotional terror of it was intense. And I didn't feel like the teachers were in my corner either at points. I felt like I was very much on my own. And that isolation was painful. I remember, like, there were times that I just would go a whole day and barely say, like, hello or good morning to anybody. And nobody would say much to me either. So I felt like very much on my own. DSA was a place where I could be myself mm-hmm. you know like I felt like there was no judgment and as long as I focused and and actually that's another thing it's a place where good grades were celebrated so me being the kind of kid that I am and the achiever that I was like I I prided myself in like not having to try too hard to get good grades like in in my life I mean I was like mostly an A and B student with occasional C you know, every once in a very rare blue moon, a Mm -hmm. D. But it was an environment that that encouraged me to say, like, I remember when they would post the grades, like, you know, the GPA. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our counselor, Mr. J. Levine, he was amazing. He would actually print out the the GPAs of all the students and put it on for the honor roll. So we could see, like, oh, you're 3.7. But I'm 3.78. I got you. You know, like it would be like a friendly competition. I don't think that that was the experience that some people had in school. But that was like. Definitely not mine. (laughs) It was a big day when he was posting those grades up. We would all be like so excited to see where we were. And like wondering, like it would just be the GPAs at first before the cards, the report cards were even printed. So I felt like I found like uh, a home I felt like I found some place where I was accepted and even all those years later like living in New York the theater scene and different places I've encountered I felt like 
at home all over again. Okay. So you also, um, along this time, and you brought me along with you for this journey, and I was real young, but you did the summer art work, the summer art workshop. Was it the summer art workshop or summer, summer art, art workshop? Okay. Let's talk a little bit about that because you were young, and it's so funny. Our, our cousin, she reminds me a lot of you and me, Khalifa. Because she has, like, Camp Khalifa or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like Solomon mm-hmm. being part of that. So she does all types of just, you know, it's weird, like, how much she reminds me of me and you in different, you know what I'm saying? Like, in yeah, different Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, traits, yeah, I can see that. You know? Um, so talk a little bit about starting that and what that was and what led you to do that. Yeah. Khalifa's amazing, by the way. I highly recommend Camp Khalifa. Solomon loved every moment of that Khalifa Khalifa is the home Yes, yes, for sure Um, So the summer art workshop Okay So since I was a part of this It's like cool, like I was in a clique I was in in the cool crowd Because I was a smart kid That could draw So (laughs) I mean I'm pretty sure Like how many schools is that happening Like Mm -hmm. that's where I felt home So the, the principal Of the school picked me and one of my closest friends, Sherry Kolick, she is so cool. That girl is awesome. Uh, she's doing her art right now in New York. Um, she picked us to go represent DSA at a citywide youth summit that was being held by, um, at the time, the director of the youth department, Arlene Robinson, sponsored by the city of Detroit. And this was a brand new department that under Mayor Archer, they had introduced this youth department to find out more about what children and people in the community wanted for youth. Mm -hmm. So we went to the summit. It was, I think it was at Cobo Hall or something like that. And, you know, it was like a lunch and a chance to meet kids from other schools. Like I really didn't think too much of it. But when Dr. Robinson spoke, I was listening to her and she said, um, when you're out there as a a young person, as you get older, you're going to understand the value of networking. So when you have an opportunity, shake somebody's hand, introduce yourself, ask for their card, see how you can keep in touch with them. She was saying that. And I was thinking like, you know what? I'm going to go ask for her card. Mm-hmm. So that's exactly what I did. I introduced myself the way that she said, and I asked for her card. You applied what she I, just said from the I from did. The speech. And I said, is it okay if I call you because I have an idea and I want to talk to you about it? And she said, Sure. So then I came home and I told my mom about it. I said, Mom, I think, because, you know, we had done a couple of Saturday things at the house for our cousins, like our little cousins, which was really like, and I love Aunt Shirley so much. It, all of Aunt Shirley's grandkids were our students, right? Mm-hmm. And she was paying us like $5 every Saturday to like watch them for two hours and do some art. Like, I don't know if you even remember that, but this preceded mm-hmm. that. And also with Rhodey, when Rhodey came home from college, we helped her with her summer program Mm -hmm. so that was our that was our first job and you know it was a great experience well that was your first my first job was actually delivering papers with uh with mr bastida okay well so that was your second job then you already had a one up on me and you were younger so yeah that was my first job uh and you know with roadie with the summer program and that was Mm -hmm. really cool so make a long story short um i told mom about the idea And she said, well, why don't you write it into a proposal? So she gave me the kind of like the points of what a proposal needed. You and I typed it up together. And 
doc, uh, Dr. Robinson. That means you did a lot of the typing because I didn't. Yeah, good. well, we we talked through some ideas. I did most of the typing. Yeah, because I was going to say I didn't it out. good at typing and definitely not grammar for a proposal that looks anything. Well, you know me. that you know, mom went over that stuff with a fine tooth comb after it was mm-hmm. done, and we had a little budget. The budget was like five thousand dollars to cover the cost of renting a facility, paying uh, teachers. The concept was that we would have youth teaching youth. So in other words, at the time, I think I was 14, you were 13. Mm. The friends that we wanted to hire were between the ages of like 12 and 14 or 15. Mm -hmm. And we we would have a group of youth between the ages of nine through 12. So it was like youth teaching youth and of course we would have a budget for some adult supervision, which really was my mom, mother dear, and I don't it was someone someone else. I think on Shirley number two. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I think so. So um that was the and then also some food. I think there was a budget for yeah, there was definitely a budget yeah, for you food. Had, you gotta feed kids. <laughs> and um there was a little budget for like some supplies trip. and yeah, a field trip or something. Yeah. It was like really basic, but you know, looking back at it, like five thousand was a very affordable thing for a three-week summer program. So, I went to Arlene. I gave the presentation. Mm-hmm. Like she invited me, and I was so nervous. Mom took me shopping. She got me a new, a new business suit. She let me carry her briefcase. I put mm-hmm. the proposal in there, and I had on heels. I wasn't used to walking in heels. I walked into the city of Detroit building. I was riding the elevator up, thinking like I'm about to present this in front of like. A, a room, a conference room full of people. The mayor might even be there. Like, my mind is going, like, who's, you know, what? how am I going to do this? How will I do this presentation? But much to my relief, it was just me and Arlene in the room. Mm-hmm. And we talked about it, and she said, I like this. I like this, Dara, and I like you. And she says, let's see if we can make this happen. Mm-hmm. And she was like, I'll get back to you. And I, and I was, like, waiting by the phone. But then after about a week or two, I stopped waiting because, you know, time was moving on. Then one day in the spring, the phone rings and she says, got approved, got the funds mm-hmm. to do this program. And we'll be at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church Community Center. Mm-hmm. So there we were. I picked up the phone and I called our friends that we were going to hire. You were, I was a director, you were the assistant director. <laughs> as much as, yeah, you can uh, talk about giving people a title. so the my role was to supervise the entire program (laughs) nepotism right at its finest right because mom was there mother dear was there so um i was it was my job to supervise the entire program Mm -hmm. and there were different moments like you know diara i remember diara taught the african drumming class yeah, I, okay, and then, yeah, DR. My aunt like, taught the dance what, class. Um, yeah. Her cousin taught a poetry class. Yep. And you, you did the, I think I you did, what I did the comic book class, and then I yeah. had, I forgot what I had. So, and we had Lamumba come in. We had, like, a little small budget, I guess, because we also had Lamumba come in, or maybe he did this, like, just Pro be on the love yeah, yeah. to come in and do, like, a video production thing. Like, it was yeah. really cool. So, um. This program taught me a lot. I managed a team. I'd never done that before. So I had to be a supervisor. Oh, my best friend Mia, at the time, she uh, she taught an art class. Like, mm-hmm. it was really cool. Like, we we all, everybody made the commitment for the most part. It was for three mm-hmm. weeks. And the kids were great. Like, 
Um, our kids were well behaved, like kids listening to kids. It was actually a pretty cool concept. And that, that gave me an introduction to how much I love to work with youth, how much I love to, to like, when you have an opportunity to share what you know, it's a beautiful thing. And I really loved that experience. It was a lot of fond memories of that. Like, I don't know if you remember, but we actually had our, two of our friends be, come on as like, uh, janitorial services too, for all the the messes that were made during the day. Like Taha, yeah, 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 yeah. Do you yeah, remember it's that? It's so funny. Yeah, it's like all these people are grown and doing different things now. You know, from then, like Dr is on the vet life. Yes, uh, which is one of Animal Planet's. He's the lead veterinarian. Yeah, on one of Animal Planet's biggest shows right now. So. Yeah, yeah, and I and I'm so like I love the show and yeah, I'm so proud of him. And I gave him his first job. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Like, like don't forget me, Dr. Like I'm right here. <laughs> like I need you to give me my thirty first job. <laughs> All of this and transitioning and then that level of confidence facing from like what you dealt with uh, still at a young age from, you know, feeling so low from being bullied and dealing with, you know, depression over that to like being on a high of like uh, entrepreneurship, contracting, uh, mm-hmm. a contract with the city. I mean, it's yeah right now, you know, scratching to get. A contract oh, it's hard. With the city. It's hard to get those government contracts. I'm going to tell you. And then, you know, and the blessing of my parents. Right. So. A $5,000 grant does not mean you get paid the next day when you have a city contract or any kind of government contract. So in in actuality, we didn't have the check when we started the program. Mm -hmm. The funds for the building were covered. I think that was like some kind of credit extended. I don't remember how that worked to make sure that the facility costs were covered and some insurance costs were covered. But as far as like payroll, (laughs) no. For my 14 and 13 year old and 12 year old friends, uh, nah, that Mm -hmm. check was not cut. So mom and dad, they covered all those costs. Mm-hmm. And then when the check came, mm-hmm. Dr. Robinson said, the check is here. And she got on the phone and she said, I want to make sure that, you know, Jan, I have you on the line. Cause she knew mom and dad had done this. She's like, I want to make sure that Dara, um, make sure that everybody is paid what they were promised. And then mom was like, well, you know, we already covered all those things, Arlene. But, you know, it'll be like reimbursed. But you and I hadn't gotten paid. Mm-hmm. So when that check came, you and I finally got paid. I didn't even remember that. Detail. Mm-hmm. So that was that like we had to wait a couple months. You yeah. know, like our friends were paid on time because of mom and dad. Thank no, God for that. Borrow money from Taha. Yeah, we should have been borrowing money from our employees. And, and that's mm-hmm. actually a real thing about business. Right. So mm-hmm. we weren't we weren't paid and we were like. When it's your business, no, sometimes you're not get paid, but you have to make sure your employees eat. So it was a very early on lesson because I would just assume like the city of Detroit, the check will be there, right? Like I never knew that a check from a program that had already started could take months to come. Mm-hmm. Um, and it probably could even take longer now. So what ended up happening was when I got my check, I, I was like, ma, you know, I just couldn't believe it. I was like, it's a check in my name. Like, I was like super excited that, you know, it was only like a couple hundred bucks, but it felt like, you know, everything to me at that time. And I was 
feeling like I was on top of the world. They, the city of Detroit, it was like, it was a really big hit. It was well received. We had a program, end of the year program. And uh, Mr. Carter, who worked in the office, Dwayne Carter, he came with Arlene Robinson and a couple other people from the city to the program where we gave out little awards to the kids for participating. And the um, the newspapers did a story on me, the Detroit News and the Free Press. So I was like, I think I was front page news on one of those. Mm-hmm. So I was like a hometown I was like beyond a hometown celebrity. I'll never forget, like, you remember Delicious off of. Uh, yeah, yeah, off of Flavor of Love. Yeah. I mean, so, right now she's a, a London Charles um, from doing other stuff we were just talking about. Yeah. Behind. I, I, I met her because uh, she did. One of my best friends was uh, managing, um, what was that? King, King of Diamond Strip Club. And then she do like a night there too. Okay, so I went to, high, I went to school with her. She was a mm-hmm. few grades up for me. And, like, you know, like I told you, upperclassmen rarely speak. But once that newspaper hit, I'll never forget, she went out of her way. She was like, girl, I read your article in the newspaper. It was so cool. Mm-hmm. Like, I was, like, a, I was like really popular off of that. You know, like, now everybody knew my name. And it, it mm-hmm. kind of went to my head a little bit because I'm like, okay, now I'm like, you know. And that was back when, when the newspaper, printed newspaper was the thing. Like, everybody's mama or daddy had it grandma's mm-hmm. on the porch first thing in the morning with it drinking a cup of coffee like it was that big of a deal so everybody knew mm-hmm. you know and it opened a lot of doors for me because um through that i got ended up and even though like i am i'm like not a fan of his politics at all but at all but governor engler almost <laughs> compared to governor snyder almost governor engler looks like Oh my gosh! I don't even want to think about it's like that. Like W compared to our current president. Yeah, it's like a like if Go- Governor Engler is George W. and and Snyder is Trump. Mm-hmm. So like, hopefully, like that's that's the best. That's a perfect analogy. I know. So at the time, though, white men being white men. <laughs> well, <laughs> and beyond that, I mean, this is like beyond even being one, a white man. This is one has more friends at the country club. Yeah, yeah. One has more friends, and you know, uh, you know. Also, one has poisoned people. Since we have family up in Flint, and I think about mm-hmm. all that stuff, I it's still I still get emotional when I think yeah, about it because I have Solomon. Yeah, and um. So anyway, with the Governor Engler bit, one of our classic debates, I said that white man is not going to go to jail. Well, we will see. That white man is not going to go to jail. And I will say it ain't Cameron. over until it's over. Cameron. That white man is going to walk scot-free. One of Ann Arbor's best white men, Governor well, Snyder. He's a murderer to me. He's a murderer to me. Continue. I will. And I'll, we'll see. You know, because the arc of the universe, you know, the, the arc bends towards justice. So we have to, <laughs> I mean, even if it feels like it doesn't, it still does. But what I was going to say, um, and in a lot, most days it feels when like I get it, my reparations. It, most days will, they feel uh, like it doesn't. When I get my reparations, then I will agree with you there. But let me let me go back to the Engler mm-hmm. piece. So I guess Engler's people found out about me. And so I got a chance to go. I was invited to the governor's mansion. I got to meet Engler. I met I met John Engler and his wife. And at the time, they had just had those uh, triplets, the three, I think, mm-hmm. three girls. So I, I told Ma, I said, I, I don't really want to meet John Engler like I don't want to do that, but mom said, I'm going to take you up there because this isn't about politics. This is about an opportunity for you to, 
you know, this is a big deal. So mom took me up there mm -hmm. and I was like, I don't want to take a picture with them. Do I have to take a picture with them? Like I didn't want to do any of that. But um, but I, I guess uh, like now I look at all that through a different lens now. Mm -hmm. When I think about Snyder, it's like maybe I, I would take a picture today with Engler if it meant Snyder would be in jail tomorrow. I'd take 100 pictures with him. That's what, um, that's what a lot of people that uh, took their picture with Donald Trump when they met with him were thinking. Yeah, that's true. That's the, what Steve Harvey was thinking. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And uh, I felt like I, I had mixed emotions. I didn't want to do it at that time. Mm -hmm. But Engler offered me a scholarship. He offered me a couple things um, because of those things. So, but I didn't, he offered me a scholarship to Adrian College. Like he almost knew I wasn't going to want to go there anyway. So mm -hmm. that was a penny saved. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it opened up doors for me. And the most important thing that came out of that whole experience was that I got a chance to sometimes the best things just start off with you picking up the ball and starting on your own. And you do have to have, like in my case, it was Arlene, someone to be in your amen corner, as the old folks say, somebody to give you the green light or the okay. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you need that. And then if you, pr if you prove yourself and you're able to see something through, that puts you in a different light. That puts you in a different light because so many people, we I have this thing about fin to, gone to, want to. I'm a, I'm fin to do this. I'm going to do that. I don't want to do that. And I don't even, sometimes when I have things in the development or in the works, I don't even discuss don't it. speak on it because, because it's not real. It's not it, tangible until yeah, like, until right. It, once the, once the, the, the ink is dried on the contract and it's signed and it's official, then I will speak on certain things. But mm -hmm. I don't even, and, you know, I don't even go there because there are so many people fin to do this, fin to do that. And in this life, it's really about what have you done? What are you doing actively? Yeah. Um, and we, and it's, it's funny, like we, we um, completely same household, same parents. Uh, relatively the same age. Uh, the difference is sex, obviously, uh, or gender. I, I don't know. I mean, it's 2018. Ain't no telling. But we debate <laughs> all the time. Like people, people have looked and uh, laughed almost at mm -hmm. how much we'll see things differently. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And kind of into what you were saying, the Amen Corner. We were just having this discussion, I swear, a couple hours ago about me saying that the network you have can open up doors of accessibility. And mm -hmm. uh, just due to certain schools that people go to, you have different levels mm -hmm. of influence in that network. Um, and then also pulling that trigger. Uh, and that's what you were speaking to. And having the courage to pull the trigger. Because that's really the temperature. The the fitna, gonna, bout to, a lot of that courage. Because that courage really is the courage to be rejected. And yeah. to still see the upside. Because yeah. you're going to get shot down maybe a million times. But you know that... It, almost you have to I believe you me personally I have a l blind faith in the person that says no is moving me closer to a better yes which mm -hmm. takes a mm -hmm. different type of thinking to think to yourself mm -hmm. you know because you're going to sit in rooms where uh, people will shoot holes in you and, and, all, and cut your cut your legs down especially in this creative world mm -hmm. they're going to question whether you're valid whether what you did was valid, you know, the classic. So, so what equipment did you work with? Mm -hmm. You know, who, who else has looked at this? Um, mm -hmm. ha have you, I mean, uh, did, did you use this software? 
And you may say no to all of that, but it's like, no, nah, I don't care. I still had a better, mo- the best movie on earth. I don't care. Yeah, yeah, that person went to Juilliard. I don't care. That person went to Harvard. I don't care. Person went to Parsons. I don't care. I got something better. Mm-hmm. I'm better than that. Mm-hmm. And you know why? Because the streets feel me. Because my mama said so. Because <laughs> I said so. I had a dream about this. And I that, woke and up and spoke for sitting to the mirror. That's the the that's the, the crux yeah. of a lot of this stuff. Like like uh, in that blind faith to continue. As you hear so many no's, mm-hmm. as much as I don't like the artistry of the man, but you were the person that hit me to a lot of um, Tyler Perry's story. And like just the, oh, the yeah. way he kept betting on himself. Yeah, I mean, you have to, well, let me say this also. Uh, you have to, you have to bet on yourself. You have to be, not just believe in yourself, but you almost have to wake up and say, I'm going to make this work by hook or crook. That's something yeah. Mother Dear used to always say. Meaning I'm, well, hopefully we don't have to turn into crooks to live our dreams. But hey, hey. by hook or crook means you're, you know, by any means necessary. So you're going to do this. Now, the rejection part. How do you how do you deal with rejection? You know, I, I've definitely dealt with my share. I still deal with a lot of rejection. I, it's, yeah. I mean, I live in L.A. And I was just telling my husband David the other day, I said, it's a lot of cold shoulders in this sunny city. If you, you know, if you're not getting shot down, you're not trying. You're not. If you're not getting rejected, you're not putting up enough goddamn shots. That's how I look yeah. at it. And but that's the blind faith I have. But and then also in addition to that blind faith, I also think you have to be strategic, right? Oh, yeah. I like I like how you talked about a no that's going to open the door to the right. Yes, mm-hmm. because some sometimes, and I know a lot of people say this, and and they're like, "Oh, you're just saying that trying to make me feel better. It don't feel good." But when you get a no, uh, it in this life, whether it's a personal no or a a business no or whatever goal you thought you wanted so desperately i want this thing and it didn't work out and everybody's telling you like everything happens for a reason just be patient and you i don't want to hear that right now i wanted that thing but trying to hear that shit but but sometimes like it is it is so true right so you have to like tech you're not going to get there immediately because you got to go through the pain of that rejection and that that pain is gonna it's gonna make you more strategic it's gonna build your integrity it's gonna build your character it's gonna give you resolve to keep pushing because if like a lot of this is a numbers game Mm -hmm. if we pick up the phone right now and we call 10 people and ask them something we're probably gonna hear no but if we hit 100 people you you hit 50 i hit 50 we're gonna hit a yes a yes and, and can, once we yeah. get that one yes, we can build on that yes. Mm-hmm. But you you can't, when you get to call number 27 and you heard no, 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 no. Of course you want to give up. Mm-hmm. Of course you want to, you wanna, you're hurt and you're wounded. And you're like, I, you feel personally rejected. But also, I've also learned something else. A lot of the rejections are not based, are, are not, have nothing to do with being personal at all. Some of them are personal and you have to acknowledge that too. But some of them are just like, it wasn't the right fit or you're not what they're looking for or whatever the reason may be that somebody else wants to go with somebody else. But you also like, especially in the entertainment business or in the arts, there's things that you can still do on your own. So you could write a script, a a screenplay, and you could 
come out to LA where I live and you could pound the pavement and see if you could get a bite on that one script. Or you could say, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to gather up a couple of my friends. I'm going to shoot a web series. I'm going to start to build a brand for myself. Or I'm going to gather up a few friends. We're going to put on a stage play based on the same story. Or I'm going to go inside of um, this ebook realm, publish something on Amazon and iTunes, see how those ebooks sell, build a brand that way. And you're still telling a story. So in other words, what are you really after? Are you after some anointed success that somebody is going to be a kingmaker and say, I anoint you with this? Or do you want to be in that power position where you come to the table with your own tools? Because I'm, I'm, I'm glad, like I, I'm hitting the ground running out there in LA. Uh, I have a, a, a animation that I just finished post-production on, which means that it's complete and we're about to be releasing it soon. I have a, a sales distribution contract for that in place. I optioned my first script, which means that there is, uh, you know, I made a little money and um, I have a chance to possibly work on the film as a director when the film is actually produced. So I'm excited about that. And I just got hired to write two screenplays. So I'm, I'm doing it. But mm. even if I didn't have those things, I still have other tools in my wheelhouse where I can access. Because trust me when I say those things did not happen the first week I got there, the first month I got there, <laughs> even the first three months I got there. You know, like it takes a lot of resolve. And I can't even tell you how many times I went out and had meetings or when it had coffee or, you know, to the point where I'm just like, what's, what's the point of all this anymore? I, I feel like it's like futile. Do you want to work with me or not? Like how many more meetings do we have to do? How many times do you have to tell me, oh, I'm going to finally get a chance. I haven't had a chance to look at your script. I'll get around to it when I can. And you start feeling like, um, you know, am I spinning my wheels? You know, can I hack it? Do I have what it takes? Because half of this is based in, uh, you have to have faith in yourself. I think it helps to be grounded in a higher power mm. because at the end of the day, you know, as much as I care about the arts and I care about this grind and I care about, you know, entrepreneurship and definitely, uh, you know, make craft in your own way, your own path, not having to answer to others for you to make a living, for you to put food on your table. The thing I value, especially now in light of everything that we've been through, I value God and I value my family. And let's talk a little bit about that. Being a mom and being such an active artist, what's that feel like? And what's that mom and wife? So like, uh, what's the family life balance of an entrepreneurial artist, mom and wife? Well, let me start by saying I have, I do have a wonderful husband. Uh, David Harper is amazing in so many ways. We are, we were, we were meant to be together. Mm -hmm. uh, he is also an artist, a writer, director, producer. Uh, he started off as an actor in this business and then he transitioned behind the scenes and we've worked on a lot of things together through the years. But outside of the things we do together creatively, 
we share a very special and deep bond um, that helps keep me grounded. He is definitely my better half. Our son, Solomon, is seven years old now. And every time I see him smile or I hear him laugh, I'm reminded that there's a God in this world. So I feel that that's, that's the thing that touches me when I see him. It definitely helps me keep going. Uh, that's the reason why I think I probably have more resolve to deal with the rejection now than ever before. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I have because I have David and, and most especially because I have Solomon. When I see Solomon, I see like, okay, Dara, whatever excuse you had, whatever chip you have on your shoulder, like, get over yourself. Like, if you're having a rough day and it's just like, F everybody, F the world, I can't believe this. Like, why are these people playing these games? You know, if you start, like, letting it get into your head, then you will find yourself in a position where you won't you won't get back out there. The first day that you don't do what you set out to do or what you should be doing to work towards your goal, you'll say to yourself, I'll get to it tomorrow. Tomorrow comes and it's more of the same and you look up and it's a month later and you still haven't moved towards your goal, whatever that may be. Um, but Solomon will not let me go. Uh, not even a day, mm-hmm. truthfully, not even an hour because I feel like I have to keep pushing. And now I feel like it's not just about even David and Solomon and me. It's about our whole family unit because this is the family that nurtured us, that shaped who we are. Mm-hmm. Like when I think about my dad and my mom and you know, I think about Mother Dear and Aunt Ruth and, of course, Aunt Shirley. I think about Aunt Joyce. I think about all of the people who loved us and nurtured us. You know, too many people to just name in this podcast. But um, these are the people who believed in us and wouldn't take us giving up for anything. Some people want to pursue the arts or start a business or set out for a special goal, and their whole family is telling them, you better not do that. Just go on and get you a job at the post office or go work at the factory or something. I mean, why you got to go do that? If anything, our family was like, if we tried to go work a day job, why are you still working that day job? You know you don't. That's not you. You know that's not you. Like, you keep complaining about it, and I don't want to hear it because even sometimes I would complain to mom about different things. I don't want to hear it because, Dara, you know, you know, that's not even what you should be doing right now. You know, you should be doing, you've got a lot of talents. You could be doing all these other things if you wanted to do. Ma, you know, I can't do that, like, this, this check comes every two weeks. This is, you know, I'm trying to stick this out. It's just a hard time. Okay, well, I don't want to hear you complain. Like, if anything, our family was pushing us to not, uh, to not stay in that. Uh, so mm-hmm. that was that was a different and a very unique and special blessing mm-hmm. in and of itself. So now, you know, fast forward to today, it's, it's 2018. Um, we live in a time, and I, like I said, beyond even our family, I think about the times our country is in, right? So, I in this in this new era of of an America with a president like Trump, 
and all the see you know I one of one I also work in an after school program and some of my in in uh in LA and some of my children some of their parents and their family members are undocumented so some things like touch me and bother me on a completely different level cuz I'm looking in the faces and the eyes of these children and I know all of the potential dangers that are never too far away. So in this era and this time when we are we have a slogan that says black lives matter, but the real questions about what's happening to our community and when it, like whether it's Flint whether it's someone like Philando Castile, whether it's it's so many different levels to uh, the decimation of our community that hurt me. So I know that I'm an artist, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a mom, I'm a person who loves my family, but as a black woman living in this America, I would be remiss not to acknowledge the scope of all of these things. And that's uh, and that's so that's so telling. Like people always wonder. Like we we'll go back and forth, but always like you know, steel sharpening steel in in a lot of ways because we have different viewpoints about a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and even even the influence of family, because um, you know, my dad and any stories I hear about my granddad from from Grandma Vale is is. It's like I'm I'm way more of the belief that America has always been this this way. The discrimination, the racism, the segregation that exists. Cause I see I hear some of these stories about granddad just down to like, you know, like I don't know if you know this story about granddad, but this is classic how he kinda got into the nightclub business. Like he used racism as a competitive advantage in business. Oh yeah, I'm familiar with this. Way. I'm familiar with this story. Yes. So starting out, <clears throat> and um, our grandfather Don Scott owned for years one of the largest nightclubs in Cleveland that people remember, named after our grandma Vale Scott. Vale's on the circle. Uh, right now, it's in uh, what's it's uh, the Cleveland Clinic District, mm-hmm. and Cleveland Clinic is known across the nation for a lot of their different efforts for all types of just different diseases mm-hmm. that are in urban places and made money off of. So like you know. The, the diabetes, heart disease, hypertension, uh, different forms of cancer. Like, you know, they, they do a lot of studies on stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, all the food that you'll eat in ghettos, the monies that hospitals make off of that is made from the Cleveland Clinic. And they, they, they grow off of that. You know, that's almost like the one of the biggest funders for uh, even the, the, the Cleveland Cavaliers. Like, one of mm-hmm. their biggest sponsors. But... Um, Granddad started his nightclub business for, for everybody knows. Like this is like the older I get, the more it just starts instilling in me. Cause some of these stories are even true with my dad and some of the things he's done. Like, um, he met first off grandma Vell because she was at a court reporting place. And what he said was, he said, I want to find the, the cleanest, but less least active club during the week. And it was owned by like some Jewish gentlemen in downtown Cleveland. And he said, I'm going to, I want to buy out this bar and I'm going to, uh, 
I want to have this during um, during the during like the time where it's going to be um, like almost like a af like not like an after work affair, right? <laughs> and he said, and the bar owner said, you're not going to make money. Pete, you know, black people aren't going to come, but if you want to buy it, you can buy it. You can have it all, you know. And uh, he went to the court reporting place and he said, all right. Give me the names of everybody downtown that gets tickets because his thought process was black people are going to be the people that get parking tickets. And he got their addresses and sent them personal invitations for four weeks straight. The first week, only like five people came. The second week, maybe 15 people came. By the fifth week, it was half packed. Six week, fully packed. From there on, people were changing and leaving work early on a Wednesday night to get over to his night. Like, and he would always do stuff like that. Like, his thought process was, like, almost using the fact that he knew that white people wanted to be separated from black people so much and that the, the justice system would do anything to oppress black people that he would always use it as a competitive advantage in business. You know, down to, like, he wouldn't put flyers in certain districts. He wouldn't... Um, he would, he would even, like, uh, in negotiations, almost in liquor for liquor negotiations, he'd say, "Hey, you know, I know some of these other young promoters. I, you know, if if you don't want to give me the price you want on liquor, you know, some of those younger promoters may go down to the places, you know, in in Italian part of Cleveland, and then he get the rates that he wanted. So it's like, I think that America's always like." Racism is one of the most American things. The older I get, I, I've I've been more altruistic at times, but it exists. It's it's a part of the temperature up for America, and 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 the more we understand how it functions, that segregation will exist. Then in business, you have to use it to your competitive advantage. Especially and I'll say, black. I'll say that this country was founded. I mean, America as we know it, not not what the Native Americans had, but uh, America as we know it, these United States. America. Yes, was founded on racist uh, principles. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, you, it doesn't, you know, even like the founding. Stolen fo land. Stolen land, stolen labor. Stolen labor. Right. And then on top of that, even like the Boston Tea Party, in reality, it was a loan from the British government where it's like, yo, man, pay us back that. So it's even stolen money from other white people that they didn't want to pay back and then they get into a fight and not pay it. I mean, right. so it's and like the it's gangsters. The first uh, soldier to lose his life for this yeah. country was a black man, Crispus Attucks. Yeah. I know my history and I know my present. I mean, I know what America's founded on and all that stuff. But I will say this, and I'm going to say this again, that there is ever-present racism in America, but there's also, like, glimmers of hope. I feel different today than I did in 2009. And... The, the real, there's like real tangible racist institutions that Barack could never undo. Just couldn't. It's impossible. You know, even, even 10 terms of a presidency wouldn't have undone it, as entrenched as it is in this country. Mm -hmm. But some things are not just based in the, the pain that you feel or the actual strife that you go through. It's not based on just the fact that you pay a higher mortgage rate than this person with the same credit score because you're black. 
It's not just based in the fact that you get pulled over by the police because you're black and you're driving late at night and you're a brother with a nice car or just a brother, period. You get murdered. Right. Right. It's not just based in that. It's also based in how you feel. So ask me, how do I feel when I see the Trayvon Martin story? The first thing I thought about was my son. And I called David because he was traveling for work. I said, babe, how are we going to talk to Solomon about this stuff? Because I'm afraid on a different level. Like, I'm always thinking about you and dad and David, but now I have a son. And I'm afraid that he can encounter a monster, like a George Zimmerman type character. Or uh, one of those officers that goes to that level. I can't help but think of those things. But... It's not just about the physical thing or the thing that you go through. It's also the emotion of how you feel. Yeah. The emotion of how I feel when I see Trump on television, there that there's an emotion there that has nothing to do with like. And this is how we're the same, but if for same you thing. because you you come for me, I'm like I'm like this is how white men feel. Okay, for but you it's like damn. No, I can't that's believe. The, but I I don't believe I don't believe that's really even how I don't I I would not. I would never categorize. Well, not all white people. Yeah, but I, I would, would never say, categorize all of anything. I would white. definitely generalize that I think more white men feel like Donald Trump than Bernie Sanders. Well, I, and I think I look, on a level of look, spectrum, I can't get know, down. I can't get down to the nuts and bolts of what percentage of this or what percentage of that. I think all of that would be regional, right? Because I live in a California area, so it was a lot of white guys around me that think exactly like Bernie Sanders. See, but what I'm trying to I say is, think. what I'm trying to say is this. Um, I'm going to say that some things are not about like how you feel mm-hmm. is just like, for example, when people talk about placebo pills, a person is sick and they give the person yeah. placebo pills and the person with placebo bill, pills still has, gets, th- gets they, healthier. Right, they they feel, they feel the better. Feeling is, and because I'm taking yeah. this medicine and even though it's a sugar pill, I don't know that because they they always do a control study. I don't know that it it didn't have an effect, but the person's blood pressure is lowered or uh-huh. some some positive impact of them pers- of the person taking the placebo. Mm-hmm. So the point is that how you feel and what you yes. feed your emotional soul, yes. just like when people talk about diet and exercise or health, right? So there's mm-hmm. there's getting on a treadmill or there's you know, walking the mile or there's eating the salad or the healthy thing. Mm-hmm. And then there's like the emotional thing, right? If I have a toxic person in my life, I need to get the person the hell out of my face yeah. because that's going to do more harm for me than me going to the cheesecake factory and eating a whole cheesecake. Or even though that may sound or, crazy. Or even more like, like someone suffering with anorexia. Cause even though they're thin in their mind, they're still fat. Because it's the mental thing that's going on behind it. And this is even, I mean, this is very true in this. Because I I would say that America's more the same and it's always been like this. We were just living in the Wizard of Oz. But but that's my emotion. Because I've accepted, in my mind, because back to the mental thing. I've accepted in my mind that Donald Trump is more the norm than... And I wouldn't no, even say I don't accept that. And, and that's that's what I've accepted. But see, I've I've, I've lived I've lived in New York, I've lived in Chicago, and I've lived in now L.A. and I've traveled yeah, a lot. I guess to living in places. Detroit. As you if I lived in Detroit in all my life, I probably think exactly like possibly. you 
Possibly. But see, since I've been other places, I I look I at it through a different lens. Truck drove. So maybe, well, if yes. I did those routes on a truck, yes. I probably think that yes. I probably think that uh, you know people that don't think like Trump are in the minority. Yeah, you know that's that's yeah. me. Yeah, that so that I, is me. I would think that too. But I guess what I'm also saying is that I think there's layers to it, right? Mm-hmm. So. Um, and, and to me, like, it's not even about Trump per se. It's really just the people that support him and, and believe I mean, in him, right? Whole, it was never really about him, though. right? It's, yeah, a, it's the yeah. the mentality of all of it, like yeah, you said. It's, it's but not, I it's also not feel Hitler, like, it's the Nazi, it's mm-hmm, Nazism. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's, yeah, he didn't do it on his own. But the whole point is that it goes back into a how do you feel, right? So how do my children feel in the classroom if they see an image of Trump on the screen? Mm-hmm. Emotionally, it's it's emotional for them. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, it's emotional in a tangible way. A family member may have just been uh, uh, deported the night before. So it's mm-hmm. not some abstract thing. How does somebody, like, image of Jeff Sessions and all that law and order stuff, as a black man in this country, like some of the thing, some of the policies that he espouses, like some of it's like changing an actual policy, and then some of it's just like exacting terror because an, an, um, how people feel emotionally is a part of their health and well being, mm. and how they're stripped down, and also um, how you can uplift yourself and others. So I think like emotionally. What can you do to feed your soul positive things? That's why I said removing toxic people from your life can be just as beneficial as changing your diet. So in that completely different shift, I plan on in the positive thing. I'm going to bring you. Yes. And then another uh, one of our big homies, our uncle. So like, Uncle, yeah, uncle he, Don D. Scott. Don D. Scott, another writer, uh, written a lot of movies. Um, Barbershop is, is probably his most, what everyone would know him most for, but he's done a lot of mm-hmm. film and television projects through the years. And, uh, and he is a sole survivor in Hollywood, which I'm going to tell you right now. If you last longer than a year in this business as a, as a professional screenwriter, that's an accomplishment. For him to last as many years as he has. And to have like waded through those waters is an impressive, impressive feat. And, and it uh, speaks to his talent, dedication, and all yeah. that. His craft mm-hmm. and his skill. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm going to do a Detroit is Different Film Festival later on in the year. Uh, what's the movie you're going to be showing? It's called The Sky Princess. It's a story about a girl who dreams of becoming a princess. And her wish is granted with the help of a magical owl. Mm-hmm. This is a family film. And uh, it's an animation that's all in 3D. Vivica Fox is one of our starring voices. And we also have Robert Gossett and Angel Conwell. And it's quite a production. Like it was, it's a feature film. So that means it's a full length film, a full length movie. And uh, it's, it's quite an experience. It has music has uh, lots of things to really love and enjoy for the family, the whole family to come out. Okay, what was it like uh, being, because uh, you've directed plays, you've written plays, Passing is very uh, much a movie, uh, I mean, a, a, a play, a, a play uh, about our family, but uh, Detroit knows that, but what's the difference in uh, directing actors for animation? Like, what what's that like? It's a lot of fun. Um, voice recording is, is so much uh, of a relaxed environment. It's not like being on a set where 
you have like in other words for voice acting my actors could come in like they don't have to have makeup they can have a Mm -hmm. baseball cap they can just be wearing whatever is cool they like it i love it um it's what you're trying to do though is it, it requires a lot of imagination because you are you're building the voices of these characters and matching them to something on the screen are they looking at the screen as this happening? Uh, some it depends. Sometimes yes, mm-hmm. but sometimes they're not. It, it depends on if we've gotten to animating that part yet or not. Mm-hmm. So chances are they won't have it. So they have to really just use their their own channel, their creativity, mm-hmm. and uh-huh. they have to pretend. And then um, I know just from a rapper myself, it's weird. Like people can hear smiles, people can hear grimacing. So like. Uh, what are the, like did you encourage facial expressions and things like that? It just depended on it. Like I knew like it's so weird, but I know what I'm I know what I'm listening for. Mm-hmm. Like I know what I want in a voice. So if I know I have a scene with characters who are fighting or if they're having an argument or even if it's like a great time like one of my characters has a birthday party that's really cool, you know, I know the kind of excitement or, or you know, what I'm looking for, the nuances in the voice, the texture of the voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm, I'm a stickler for uh, letting the actor, you know, find that voice organically mm-hmm. uh, and then honing it, like giving certain notes that I want to refine this, refine that. But I did work with a very talented cast. So I worked with all seasoned voice actors for this. And that, that made it a lot easier. I didn't really have any first-time voice actors except for my um, that children. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Solomon, your nephew, is in it. Mm-hmm. He's a voice actor in it. And uh, it was a lot of fun to direct my son in the recording booth. Okay. <laughs> Lots of excitement there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was so funny because, like, I wanted him to repeat a line. And he was like, I said that already, mommy. You know, like, I Mm. wanted a different take on it. So we had to, like, get a little creative and Mm. maybe, like, bribe him with a cookie. Like, hang in that booth, son. Mm. We need one more take. So Oreos are needed for for child recording. (laughs) (laughs) No, he, he, he wants more than Oreos. He wants, like, one of those Panera Bread warm chocolate chip cookies. The boy has expensive taste. We definitely did not. Yeah, we were we were some freeze pop kids. Well, not even freeze pop. <laughs> the twin pop. <laughs> we were some yeah, twin, twin pop, pop kids. kids. Mm-hmm. Old school. <laughs> Old school. Um, so we're driving over to uh, the point in the interview where I'm going to ask the two. I've already asked the classic Detroit is different question when I had you all before. But now I got two more. Uh, and I know the answer to one of these questions and this is going to be a funny story, too, because I know the answer, but I don't know the second part of it. What was the first car you owned, year, make, model, and what year did you get it? 1984, Buick Century, and I got it in 2000. How long did it last? I got it in 2000 or 2001. Um, maybe about a year and change. Where did you go when you first got the ride? Oh, mom and I, it was Aunt Ruth's car. Mm. Uh, She sold it to me. And bless her heart, it was so funny because I think I bought it for like $800. And then something broke with the radiator and I had to spend like $500 to fix it. And so she sent me back the difference. (laughs) I love Aunt Ruth. Um, What ended up happening was the first place I drove it was from, well, technically, Ma did most of the driving on that trip, but... 
it was when we we took the bus or the train to Chicago to pick up the car, and then we drove back to Detroit. Mm-hmm. So that was the first place it hit the road mm-hmm. on ninety four. Mm-hmm. And, and then that that car ended up being a hand me down to me. I no, remember. I thought you had Mother Dears. No, nah, for a while I had that car for a second, and that car had no AC. That car was the worst. You don't really need AC, but that you much needed you AC. Hit the yeah, windows. One of them summers. It had, had it had good heat though. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean that's all you need in the D is good heat. I, I mean I've had many cars without AC. I mean AC is a luxury. <laughs> Shit, no, it's needed sometimes. All right, so <clears throat> the um the uh what is the another question all right you're a dj you're playing three songs it's the end of the fireworks and you're at woodward and jefferson you're a dj you get to play three songs for the crowd what are you playing i'm gonna play uh got to give it up marvin gay okay i'm gonna play um what's that song i give you love (laughs) i give you peace what's that song you had that on the radio the other day Oh, uh, L.J. Reynolds. Yeah, oh, I'm playing <laughs> Key to the world. Okay. I'm playing Key to the world just okay. because. Okay. And then I may play um, Sky's the Limit, Biggie Smalls. I'm with it. <laughs> Get my daughter this college plan so she don't need no man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but make sure on top of that college plan that you have another plan. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, it's March 10th. Biggie Day was yesterday. March All right. 9th. All right. You know, to this day, it's so funny because I remember I didn't even know my mom knew Biggie. Um, the day Biggie was murdered, I, I woke up, I walked downstairs. My mom was like, you know, Biggie got murdered. Biggie got shot. And I was like, Ma, you know who Biggie is? I mean, it's like I had the pictures up on the wall mm-hmm. and stuff. but And then I'm like, my mom don't know who Biggie is. I was, she don't know. And then I turned on the TV and I saw the brat crying on the corner. Mm-hmm. And I was like, damn, I guess Biggie did it. I'm like, I'm like, I got life after death upstairs. I'm like, this mm-hmm. is crazy. It was. Uh, yeah, it was. Um, It was. A, it, it's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot to process. Yep. Yeah. Very, very prolific brother. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That whole time I was uh, I was I had um, your other movie. Uh, I had. uh. Your, your lead actor's brother taking me to Biggie because she stayed in Brooklyn. I'm like, mm-hmm. yo, you got to show me some of this Biggie stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Michelle's brother, yeah. Yeah, Lee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, thank you so much. Thank How do people you. get in contact with you if they want to so, uh, buy something or you do all types of um, stuff? Here, I do. You know. um, so theskyprincess.com and we're also on Facebook um, so you can check us out there. And... Um, I'll I'll send you those links. Yep, and then also in October you're coming for the Detroit is different. I'm film so excited! Festival. I cannot wait for the Detroit is different film festival. Is, we're we're not gonna get turned gonna up. We're gonna get turned up. Turned. We're gonna have lots of fun. I know. Lots you, of films. You talking about doing a possible like we may get my friend Kai. Oh yeah, well, actually <laughs> we're gonna show. let's we let's may have a show in the <laughs> that that's gonna be a surprise. That's gonna be a surprise. <laughs> like that line in uh, I'm not one to quote uh, uh, Little Wayne songs often, but let her see the ass and let the rest surprise her. You don't let, let the rest surprise them. <laughs> But yeah, we may do a couple different things yes. right here. 
because uh, it may be interesting to have like an on hands like uh, make it a little bit more interactive. We may do something interactive because as much as people, you know, it, I'm thinking traditional uh, film fest. We show movies. We're gonna have some conference talks. Yeah, but we may do something interactive because people love interaction nowadays right. and we i can, got we all can this do equipment. a project we can we'll come up maybe with some right cool ideas. With, yeah. like you you could be maybe that may be something you could be in a movie yes as opposed to just sitting in the audience what if you join yeah, us learn in a, a line yes and just yeah. see how that whatever yeah, that like comes. We, we write a script on the spot and just shoot, shoot it. something yeah that would be cool that'd be interesting yeah thank you so much thank you Detroit is Different is where you get information, artistry, history, music, and even comedy. Detroit is Different, a home for the culture of Detroit. Visit online at DetroitIsDifferent.com today.